0: I'm Jasmine Moradi, and you're listening to the Queens of Tech podcast, a podcast series about raising the voice of workplace champions. 60-plus questions in around 30 minutes with women, non-binary, and transgender influencers about their journey into STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I started the Queens of Tech podcast initiative in May 2022 because I would like to retain more women, non-binary and transgenders in the tech industry. Talent is out there, but our work environment needs to improve for all to feel safer, stay authentic and to be valued for our contributions. My vision is to raise the workplace ecosystem for all in the tech industry by killing the imposter syndrome, stopping bad behavior and increasing equity opportunities. Each podcast talk is built around 60 plus questions regarding upbringing, education, career path, DEIB, and future advice. My mission is to bridge the gap between schools and workplaces by getting to the heart of my guests' personal life and career journey to inspire other girls, women, non-binary, and transgenders to unleash their full potential to reach top leadership roles in the tech industry. My goal is to raise the voice of tech champions around the world and together with companies, investors and politicians, raise the challenges and opportunities around equity, inclusive diversity and belonging in our workplaces. Enough is enough. I would like to enforce companies to build a sustainable inclusive culture, to retain diverse talent, so we keep the workplace power equity to continue building future diverse and inclusive products. Your Voice Matters. In this episode, I'm very excited to welcome my guest, tech queen Elin Huge, AI and business strategist, board chair and member, and professional speaker. Hi, Elin. Hello. I'm very happy to have you joining us all the way from Norway today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And How are you? I am amazing, especially now when I get the chance to interview you and get to know you more. Oh, we'll see. (laughs) So let us dive into your journey into STEM. Hope you're ready for the Queens of Tech 60 plus questions. Let's go. Let's warm up with a few fun facts about you. How would you describe your personality in three hashtags?
1: Fearless, strong sense of integrity and disciplined.
0: How would you describe your life in three sentences?
1: Busy, rewarding, and happy.
0: What kind of music stimulates and motivates you the most? Metal. What is your personal motto?
1: I'm not sure I have one, but what I usually tell people I mentor and support is, just do it. What is your favorite book? don't think I have one. When I find a good one, I finish it, and then I move on. What is your favorite podcast? Same answer. Just shopping around. Mac or PC. PC. Say something interesting about you that most people don't know. I do full contact kickboxing when I don't work. I have masked up a blue eye. What is your hidden talent? Gardening and agriculture. I'm very passionate about organic farming.
0: If you were going to write a book about your life, what would the title be?
1: Probably just do it.
0: Great start, Eileen. Let us dig deeper. Our childhood has an effect on our adulthood. Our early experiences shape our belief about ourselves, others, and the world. Now, I want to discover your childhood. Where
1: did you grow up? I grew up in a very small village called Kvam, in between the mountains, in the middle of Norway. What was your dream job as a child? I don't think I had one. Because I didn't really know what my job could be. I just did well at school. What was your favorite subject in school then? Probably maths. And what was your least favorite subject? Probably Norwegian.
0: What is your earliest memory of technology and the arrival of the internet?
1: A guided tour at our university campus when I started university. That was the first time I was introduced to the internet and email. And then which were the three first technology gadgets you owned? A mobile phone and a computer. And at some point I had a Walkman, if that counts, as a gadget.
0: Who was your female role model growing up and why?
1: I have never had role models per se. I've never felt the need to have those kind of role models. And female? can't remember that.
0: How do you think where you grew up and the school you went to and the generation you come from influence your education and career choice?
1: Well, two things. The age I grew up in, so I grew up in like the 80s, 90s. In the 80s, there were nobody telling me that girls or women could not achieve the same as boys and men. So I grew up thinking I could do whatever I wanted to, and nobody told me I couldn't either. The school I went to was a typical like village school and I did really well in school and I started a year earlier than the others. Uh, But I think that my school didn't really help me to take out the potential I had as a kid. It was more like trying to make me fit into a box, which I didn't do. I didn't fit in that box. So I think it took me extra time to find me in a way. Actually, I would say it took me an additional 20 years to get there because I didn't get it from the school.
0: Very powerful. I do recognize myself in that. Now, I'm going to read two quotes. First one, how does the universe expect me to choose a career path at 16? I can't even choose what I want for dinner. Second, Abraham Lincoln said, I quote, the best way to predict your future is to create it. So Elin, I want to know the choices behind your career path then. Where and what did you study at university?
1: So as I said, I did well in school. So the natural choice for me was to study medicine to become a doctor. And then I realized that I didn't really want to work as a doctor. So I ended up studying medical physics instead. It wasn't really any well thought through foundation for that decision because I came from a background where there were no other academics in my family. And as I said, my school, they were not there, right? They didn't understand my potential or how I could utilize it. So it kind of just became that way by chance in a way and lack of knowledge about other opportunities.
0: So would you say that is what influenced you to get in your choice of field today?
1: No, what brought me where I am today is my fundamental interest in how the use of maths and statistics on large amounts of data can create value for a business or in any type of value chain. And that has been my fundamental interest all through my childhood and my young adult years. And that is more about my natural instinct for analysis and understanding any process as things happening in a sequence. And what professional roles have you had before that led you to what you are doing today? I've always worked in business development of various types. So I think that is why I am currently in a position where my role is to be the interpreter between business leaders on one side and the business needs and the tech teams and the tech setup on the other side. And that's where my role is to bridge the gap between the tech and the value.
0: And you're an AI business strategist, board chair, a member and professional speaker. What are your main responsibilities in those different roles?
1: Well, so to a large extent, I am my own boss, obviously. I'm running my own company as a speaker. And as a speaker, my responsibility from stage is to help my audience understand AI in a better way and a more useful way. Because a lot of leaders, decision makers, and other people uh, struggle with understanding what AI really is and what it can do, and what they should care about. So that's the one side of it. As a board chair and board member, of course, my responsibility is towards the owners and the management of the company where I'm on the board. And that implies both a formal and legal responsibility a financial responsibility, but also a strategic responsibility. I need to understand what the owners want, where the management is, and how I can help them make this whatever business ambitions they have possible. As an AI and business strategist, well, it's always about helping the customer, isn't it? What do they need from me? Well, then I need to just dig into my toolbox and see what do I have in my background and knowledge that I can use to help my customers.
0: What made you decide to become your own boss?
1: As I said initially, I grew up in a system that tried to fit me into a square box. I'm not really good at sitting into that square box, which means that if I'm going to work for other people, I need to find an environment where they accept that and accept that I want to do more than what my job description says. I don't fit in a box. Um, Well, my experience is that the best way of dealing with that is to be my own boss, because then I can decide what kind of box I want to be in. What are the typical workday look like for you? There's no such thing as a typical work day. Well, some days I'm traveling to be on stage and then it's all about preparing to be on the stage. Other days I'm more about dealing with the companies where I'm on the board and that's more phone calls, meetings, emails, solving problems. But there's a significant part of my everyday work that is about keeping up to speed with everything going on in this AI and tech landscape that actually requires that I need to take the time to sit down and read. And I need to take the time to sit down and think.
0: I love the quote, choose a job you'll love and you will never
1: have to work a day in your
0: life. So Elaine, what do you love
1: about your role? I love the diversity. I could never do just one job for my entire life or for a longer period of time. The way my brain works, I need to be able to do many things at the same time because my brain sees new dots and then I connect them and I see value in connecting this with that. And then, oh, I need to dig into that. And if I do that, then I will learn this and then I can solve that problem.
0: What is the best experience you've had in your role so far? Any examples?
1: As a speaker, you know, when you're on stage, it's difficult to judge. Am I doing a good job? But when the client those who booked me or people from the audience come over to me after my talk and say, wow, I didn't think about it that way. Or you really brought in some new perspectives and new thoughts. And I think some of the best quotes have been, this is the most thought-provoking keynote I've heard for my 20 years in business. That's when I think, wow, yeah, I did my job today.
0: And then what is the biggest challenge you've encountered so far and how did you tackle it?
1: I'm not sure I can pick one. I think the category of biggest problems is whenever you're in a long career coming to challenges related to, you are in a position and then you have leaders around you who don't want you in that position anymore. And you get into some type of conflict in your workplace. Those types of conflicts are, most times they are very hard, not always, but mostly. And when those conflicts become legal conflicts, it's a struggle and it becomes a mental challenge that is just draining, I think. That would be the category. I have experienced it more than once. I mean, not a a whole lot of times, but in a long career, you do get across these situations every now and then. What do you wish everybody understood about your role? A lot of people want to take on board position, but what you really need to understand is that when you do that, you take on a personal responsibility. So it's not just about showing up on the board meetings and put it on your CV and say, wow, see what I can do. It's a lot of responsibility to actually ask the right questions and follow up on the right things because you are responsible for how the business does, how it performs. As a speaker, you can't just say, oh, I want to be a speaker and then believe that you can charge a lot of money. It takes a lot of work. And if you're going to build an international speaking career like I'm doing now, it takes so much more work than just putting together a talk and go on stage.
0: What is the one common myth about your professional field that you want to disapprove?
1: Not sure. Well, I think I'm back to, at least as a speaker, this belief that, oh, as long as you do well in like your local environment and you can do a little bit of speaking in your company, then you're all good. No, you're not. You've barely just started scaling the stairs. What do you love about working in the tech industry? It affects everybody. And I think there are so many myths and so many like beliefs and like pink castles, and particularly in the consulting industry. And what I really like is when I can debunk some of those myths and when I can help people understand that you cannot just buy some software, and then problem solved. There's always a human in the value chain. And in the end, the humans are the ones making problems and the chaos. And so we really need to merge this understanding of the tech landscape with a deeper understanding of humans and why we behave and think and act the way we do.
0: Oprah Winfrey said, I quote, Think like a queen. queen is not afraid to fail. Failure is not a stepping stone to greatness, so Elliot. What have by far been your biggest achievement in your career?
1: I'm not sure. Perhaps looking at my bank account as an independent speaker and seeing that I'm okay. It's not good enough, but I'm okay. I can pay my own salary. And then my accountant says, yeah, this looks good. We're good to go. And what's the
0: biggest factor has helped you become successful in its success habits? Discipline. How do you measure your own performance at work?
1: As a speaker, it's always about my audience. So, There's a very subjective feeling, right? You speak with the the client and the audience after the talk. It's about their feedback. Did I move the audience or not? And with some experience, you manage to separate the chaff from the wheat in the feedback. Because a lot of people will say, oh, nice talk. Have a great day. That's not interesting. That's irrelevant. They just say it to be polite. But it's when they really say, you changed my perspective on things, or this really had an impact on me. That's when you know that. They are being honest, and it really did make a difference. So that's one side to it. The other side is, again, my bank account, all right? Because success is really about getting paid and getting valued for the job you do. And when you see that people are willing to pay for your worth, okay, in a business landscape, that is a performance measure.
0: Amazing. And with success comes failure. What is your biggest failure in your career, and
1: what did you learn from it? I think that must be one of the leadership roles I've had a few years back or when I was hired to do quite a rather heavy C-level position. Um, there were some red flags that I ignored. That's part one of the biggest mistake. The other part of that is that the onboarding of me into that role was like non-existent. Uh, which very quickly got me into some real challenges. And they could very well have been avoided if the CEO who hired me had actually done his job or I should have just realized earlier that this onboarding is not going to happen in a way that I needed to happen. So I shouldn't have accepted it. So let's put it this way. I shouldn't have accepted the position, but yeah, learning by doing.
0: What is inspiring and motivating you the most in
1: your role and career right now? So I would say... When I see that, I truly do make a difference for the people around me. That's my main driver.
0: Let us now jump into the influence of mentors, role models, champions, and sponsors. Role models can consciously or subconsciously be a powerful force in our lives. In addition, champions can stand up and advocate for us and open up the world of possibilities. Sponsors match emerging talent with leaders and influential employees who can help us move ahead in our careers. Ilin, do you have a mentor, champion, or a sponsor today? No. Why not?
1: Don't feel the need, for one.
0: Who is the female, non-binary, or transgender role model you look up to in your field?
1: I never really had that kind of role models, and I never felt the need for. I look at people around me, and well, in a way, you could say role models on singular features or singular achievements, but not as individuals. I'm probably very self-driven. History shows that it has been more common
0: for men having mentor champions as sponsor in business than women. So Ellen, how important do you think is to have a mentor champion or sponsor during one's career?
1: I think it's important to have somebody you can discuss with on a business level. I do have that kind of sparring partner and she is important. She's not necessarily a role model, but she's a very important sparring partner. And I think you need those throughout your life and not just have those people around you who would always cheer you on and say, oh, you're doing well. But those people who you can actually have the discussion you need to have on a professional level, wherever you are in your career and to discuss your options, the outcomes, the risks, what you want to achieve and help you see things from different perspectives. I do mentor a few other people, though. And I find it interesting to learn more about how other people think. Because all those I mentor, they have their own careers already. They are resourceful people, both men and women. And I just find it interesting to connect on a deeper level than just a LinkedIn connection. And and then I realized that I have done quite a lot of things in my career. And then some of those things um, have proven to be useful to other people.
0: Definitely. Let's move on to leadership. Adena Friedman, president and CEO of Nasdaq, said, I quote, empowering those around you to be heard and valued makes a difference between a leader who simply instructs and one who inspires. Then Shirley Sandberg, ex-CEO of Facebook, said, I quote, leadership, about, leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence and making sure that the impact lasts in your absence. So, Eileen, what does leadership
1: mean to you? It means to be the one that people are willing to follow in good times and bad. In particularly in a company, you can't just be the leader people want to go to a party with. You need to be the one they also trust enough to follow when days are rough. And to be that person, you need to both be a resourceful person in terms of the business you are leading. But also you need your employees to trust you. They don't need to look at you as their best friend, but they need to trust you.
0: What do you consider a good versus a bad leader?
1: I think that depends on the context and the individual. So a good leader to me could be a bad leader to you. It's really about finding this match that makes you willing to follow that person in good times and bad. A good leader to me would it be somebody who tells me that our vision for the company is this. And we are going in that direction. I want you to think about these things and avoid these risks. Here's the ball. I'll be here if you need me. That's the kind of leader I need. And the leader I am, I try to do the same to say, we're going over there. This is our strategy. This is our vision. This is the frame within what you need to do or where you should be. One of my strengths is that I can be very clear. This is what I expect from you. I'm not a good leader for those who need a lot of emotional support and a lot of um, follow-up. I don't have the patience for that.
0: Who is your favorite female, non-binary or transgender tech leader and wife?
1: Well, I find Ayesha Kama, She's from Pakistan, lives in Singapore. She's a leader of Ado.ai, and uh, we're kind of doing a bit of the same, except that she's, of course, the CEO or at least board director, one of the, the co-founders of Ado.ai. So we have the same understanding of maths, of data, how the world works, but she sees it from a completely different culture because she's from Pakistan, lives in Singapore, has lived in the U.S. So I follow her work with a great deal of interest. And I see, although we have the same understanding of how AI works, we approach some of the bigger challenges in a different way. And I find that really interesting.
0: How would you describe yourself as a leader?
1: Well, as I said, I think I am rather direct and clear in what I want and then I try to support people on their journey and promoting the characteristics of the individual that that person is already really good at. I truly believe that we would have a stronger workforce if we were better at expanding and growing those things we're already good at even more, rather than just trying to fix those things that we're not really good at and get people up on a mediocre level on everything. I think we would create more diamonds if we actually nurture the strengths of the individual and then put together a team of rather of peculiar characters that are really good at separate things. I think that would be a much stronger team than a, a team of averages that are just reasonably good at everything. And as a leader, what values are most important to you? Integrity, courage, and respect. What leadership lessons have you
0: learned that formed you into the leader you are today?
1: You should always be curious about where people come from. What are they carrying with them in terms of life experience? You never know what they have in their suitcases. And um, they're not going to tell you on the first attempt. And I think that kind of curiosity will help you as a leader to understand how they are going to react to different situations, what kind of choices they will make, and what is important to them, because people are not really rational.
0: What are your three strengths and three weaknesses?
1: I always find that a difficult question. So here's my take on that. All your strengths, the stronger they are, they have a flip side. So all your strengths will, at some point, become a weakness.
0: Let us now jump into the hottest topic in business today, workplace culture, unlocking the power of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Ellen, what does DEIB mean to you personally?
1: In this context, I am extremely privileged. I grew up in one of the richest countries in the world with a reasonable approach to diversity. I mean, it's not perfect. We have a lot of problems. All societies do. But I haven't really experienced diversity challenges except for being a female leader on top executive level. That's where I suddenly realized that in a situation of friction on top executive level, uh, there's a difference between men and women. And if you're the only woman, chances are that you're going to be the one singled out. What do you consider being
0: three to five signs of good company culture if you were to join a company?
1: A lot of people say that we have a lot of space for other opinions. In most cases, that's just nonsense bullshit. But if they actually do have openness to diversity of mind, then it doesn't matter what kind of color you come with or size or gender definition or religion or political views. Diversity of mind means to me to be open to other perspectives, wherever they come from. So if a culture has that, then I think it's a great place to be. And of course, treat people with respect. Respect everybody. I mean, it's not about cuddling and serving Coke and cinnamon rolls, right? It's about treating everybody with the same level of human respect, whatever they look like or sound like or come from.
0: You mentioned a little bit earlier, but as a woman, what has been the most significant barrier in your career and how have you overcome these challenges?
1: I think as a woman, I haven't really thought about the fact that I have been a minority in both education and work throughout most of my career. So I've always been used to being in a male-dominated environment in the majority of my lifetime. But That's fine. And in the fight gym, I'm the only woman very often. That. It doesn't matter. I don't even think about it. I laugh about it when there's no cue for the dressing room. But I do also believe that if the environment is too male-dominated, you lose out on some perspectives. And research has shown that a key aspect is risk management, for example, that heavily male-dominated environments are very often more risk-willing, not necessarily a good thing. And a bit of a cowboy culture as well in some of these environments where there are too many of these boys doing boys things when they are out together on social events at work. And that's not something I really appreciate. I remember a couple of situations where I got actually pissed off and I told the guys that and they just laughed at me. And I thought, well, you know what, I'm leaving this place. and asking to take this. But as I said, that was not until I was on like a top executive level
0: Why do you think it's important for more women, non-binary and transgenders
1: to join the tech industry today? We need everybody because humans and technology, we are just becoming like one. The technology is taking such an integrated place in our lives that if we want to have an impact on the development of our lives and societies and businesses, we also need the same people in tech because it's two sides of the same issue. So it's not like the tech people are over there and then the rest of us are over here doing the other stuff. It doesn't work like that anymore because digital technologies are so integrated with our daily lives in everything we do.
0: Do you and how do you speak with your colleagues and community about DIB challenges, for example, salary gaps and promotions?
1: What's quite interesting is I have a very good friend. She's from an African country, lives in Norway. When I hear her stories about her work life, her private life and the situations that she gets into, not her fault, but how she is treated by our fellow Norwegians today in 2023, I'm disgusted. So yes, we do have some of those conversations about those hidden biases that actually influence us. And I said on a previous question that I haven't really experienced some of these diversity challenges, obviously, because I'm Norwegian, have grown up in Norway, and I'm just privileged in many ways. But when I listen to Hara and her struggles, I, I realize that we have so much work to do. And I think maybe that is the core here that we need to hear more from those voices who have actually experienced all these difficulties when they need to raise their voices. I mean, I can't do it for them because I don't have their experience. I don't carry their history. They need to do it. Those who actually have those stories to tell. And then um, the rest of us need to listen and take in what actually happened here. Because there are so many of those hidden or half-hidden biases that impact us every day. And we kind of just forget or ignore because we don't see the consequences.
0: There are many public and internal discussions about the barriers women, non-binary, and transgenders face from reaching high position in the tech industry. How do you feel has affected is affecting you? And what is your advice on how to best unblock these roadblocks?
1: Oh, if there was one simple answer, we would have done it already, wouldn't we? So I didn't really realize that this was a problem, as I said, when I grew up. I didn't realize until I was in a top-level position myself. And I got into a situation where I realized that as I was the only woman, I will single out. How to deal with that? Well, I think being a nice girl and keeping it quiet doesn't help anybody. I think a lot of people are afraid to raise their voices because they're afraid of their reputation. And to some extent, that might, of course, be true because humans are rather cruel. But I think we need to raise our voices because that's the only way you can actually help making a change. If we just keep it quiet to save our own reputation, then nothing's going to happen, is it? And today,
0: tech companies spend a lot of marketing money to attract women non-binary and transgenders. However, at the same time, they're finding it hard to retain them. Articles show that women are leaving the tech industry. What is your best advice or strategies for how companies can work to build a stronger corporate culture that engages gender diversity and equity?
1: Stop making it a marketing gig and do it properly all those fancy talks about what we do and then it's just on the outside it doesn't matter how polished the outside is if the inside is full of muck actually uh, there's a company i yeah, very often awesome, call it a rat's nest because that's what it is it looks great on the outside doing very well on the stock exchange and i know that culture is a rat's nest
0: what would you say are the few challenges then of implementing dei culture in a workplace today
1: so rats in the rat's nest you actually need to take In the full extent of clearing out the rats, you can't just cover it and say, oh, no rats here and say everything's great and then just continue doing business as you have always done on the inside. You actually need to clear out the rats, which means that you take the tricky job of changing the culture internally. You can't just let those people who've always been there continue doing the stuff they've always been doing and you leave them in the positions and you let them continue doing the same stuff. What do you think is going to change? Nothing. Well,
0: that's why I say kill bad behavior. Yeah. Why and how do you think companies would benefit from having not just women, non-binary and transgender leaders, but actually higher gender representation at C-level and boardrooms with actual mandate?
1: Well, just that, actual mandate, right? Why should they? Well, (laughs) do you want to be part of the future or you want to slowly die? So the society is changing in many parts of the world. In some parts of the world, it's going backwards. Not going to mention in particular, but some of them are English speaking. But things are really changing in many parts of the world, moving forward, which means that The customers out there, they see that they have a choice. I can choose, do I want to buy my stuff from this company or that company? And then when they see and companies or say the people who worked in the rat's nest, they leave the companies and they start saying, Well, that is a rat's nest, that's what we need, right? Then customers will eventually say, Well, I'm not going to do business with rat's nests. I'm going to do business with other types of companies. And that is slowly happening. So if you want to stay in the position as a rat's nest, then I think that you will slowly die.
0: How much do you think the tech industry has changed regarding this subject since you joined?
1: A lot. I hear so many stories about how things used to be, like 10, 20 years ago. And I look around now and I see that things have really changed in terms of professional attitude. Like Even just how business is made, how deals are made. Now it's a much more professional approach too making a deal, to agreeing on the terms on a commercial level than it was maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, there's much more of a professional attitude. So things are moving, but then I still see companies like on the leadership level, individual level, like in the board level where top executives, because of their maybe unconscious biases, they choose this candidate over that because this candidate had, they say, oh, the right qualifications. And if you dig really into it, it wasn't that. It was the skin color and the gender and the way you speak to people and what kind of advice you give to people. And I find it interesting to study the use of language because we tend to think that, oh, we speak to everybody the same way. No, you do not. And the choice of words impacts the culture and your attitudes. And just look at, and this is proven through research, just look at the difference in language used by and about men versus women. And that colors also what we expect from a woman versus a man in a workplace And how we observe and judge a person in a conflict situation is gender-specific. We, in many instances, accept more from a man than from a woman. As a woman with very long hair and makeup and colorful clothes, I'm expected to behave as a woman in board position, for example. And then people after board meetings, like on a frequent basis, come to me and say, oh, you're very direct. Because I don't beat around the bush. If I have an opinion about something or I have a critical question, I raise the question. Or I say, this is what I am sir. This is what I think about the situation. I believe this and that isn't good to do. I wouldn't beat around the bush and wrap it in and then hope that they would get it. I would say just straightforward, still being polite, respectful. But I would just say it. We don't expect that from a woman. And now I'm just talking about the gender differences, not all the other diversity issues which are even worse. So we need to understand that even though we think we're not biased, we all are in ways that we don't even realize until we are confronted with it. And that is a huge challenge in the domain of AI, because when we use those data that we have, that document human behavior over 10, 20 years, maybe more, all our human behaviors and ways of thinking are just documented. They're ingrained in those data. And then we train the algorithms on those data and we expect then the algorithms to be unbiased. That is believing in black magic, because those algorithms are trained on our human behaviors for good and for bad. And in many instances, that is for bad. And then we expect them to represent the world we want and we're surprised that they fail in that quest. To me, that's like, that is an example of human stupidity. We need to understand that it's our own biases and behaviors that creates the biases in the algorithms. If we want to change that, we need to look into the mirror, then change our human behavior first. Looking back on your career, what one thing would you have changed in your working environment to break the bias? Good question. I don't know. Is learning through experience, right, and a long career. And a lot of the things I know now, I didn't know 20 years ago or 25 years ago when I started working life. And I think maybe the one thing that I wish I had understood 25 years ago, or maybe actually let's say 30, 35 years ago, because I wish my parents had been more conscious to teach me this is to listen to people and understand what they carry in their suitcases before you judge their behaviors and performances.
0: And looking forward, what will you do as a leader to improve the bias for the next generation of women, non-binary and transgender intake beyond the amazing
1: work you're already doing today? So to me, it's about continuously developing and expanding my knowledge about our fundamental differences in, say, language, for example, and our fundamental differences in how we understand the world. And then when you understand those fundamental differences, it is also much easier to find a common ground, say, in the workplace, and then start solving the bias problems from there. Because if we're just sitting there in the sandbox, throwing sand at each other, we're not solving anything. We really need to understand what is the fundamental difference that makes us behave in these ways. Because I don't think people discriminate because they got out of bed and decided today I'm going to be an asshole. I don't think most people do that. They do it unconsciously. And so we need to uncover the conscious understanding in this situation.
0: Let us move on to another hot topic in business today, which is work-life balance and mental health. Elaine, you have without a doubt a busy lifestyle. How do you take care of yourself to maintain good mental
1: health? I never cancel my training sessions because I have too much work. Never, ever do I do that. And that is because physical exercise is key for me to remain mentally healthy. Physically healthy, of course, too. But if I have a lot of work to do, then I definitely make sure that I do go to my training session in the fight gym or I go for a run or whatever I can do. So never, ever skip your training session because you have too much work to do. The more work you have, the more important it is to keep that appointment with yourself. Have you ever experienced burnout? Kind of. And that was in the situations where I didn't manage to deal with the mental load And also ignored the importance of sleep. So that's the other part of my mental health framework, get enough sleep. I know I need seven to eight hours every night. If I don't get those hours, then I know that I will be balancing on a very thin line, which is not good for me. So I can only do that a few days in a row and then I need to make sure that I do get my sleep.
0: What is your advice on how companies can create a more mentally healthy workplace in the new now?
1: Well, first of all, you really need to understand what creates the feeling of insecurity. And very often it's when you don't know what's going to happen around you and you don't feel that you are in control of your situation at work. So I think companies need to stop pushing too much and rather start enabling. But this is a very cultural specific topic, because I know the work culture in, say, the US or the UK is very different from the Nordics. And I think, I do believe that the Nordics have a healthier work culture and a better work-life balance. So I'll be a little bit careful here because I do believe that the Nordics are probably better than many other cultures in creating this balance.
0: What motivates you every day to get out of bed?
1: That I see that I can make a difference and create value for my surroundings. That what I do matters.
0: Now, let us wrap up with a few words of wisdom and a piece of advice for our listeners. Elin, what is the best piece of advice you've been given that has helped you during
1: setbacks in your role and career? Okay, so then I need to go back to my childhood. So my father, he was born in 1924, so he was quite old when I was born, so he was in his 50s. So he was a late teenager during the Second World War, and he was arrested by the Germans and he was sent to Sachsenhausen, so one of the concentration camps in Germany, and he spent two and a half years there. He survived because he was young, tall, blonde, strong. When he was rescued, he was a walking dead, but obviously he survived, as I'm here. And he taught me that whenever you see other people in trouble, you can't just turn away. There's a Norwegian poem with a line saying, Du må ikke så velden uret som ikke rammer deg selv. And what it means that you shouldn't just stand there and accept the injustice done to people around you. And I see a lot of people do that because they are afraid that if they interfere, they're going to get into trouble themselves. And I think this is a fundamental reason why I started by saying that one of my core personality features, the hashtag is fearless, because this is one of the most important things he taught me to stand up, not just for myself, but for the people around me. Of course, that has got me into a few fights that were not necessarily mine. And I also had leaders around me saying, why why are you fighting this fight? It's not yours. Well, you know, it's not necessarily about me. It's about fighting for a little bit better world every day. And then
0: what is the worst advice you've ever been given and how did you tackle it?
1: And I had a boss I really didn't get along with. I remember I talked to some woman, like a very like career-oriented person. And she said, oh, just stick it out. Just deal with it. I'm like, no, it doesn't work for me. Just because I would pick the fight, right? If I see that that severe type of injustice is done to me or to others, I would pick the fight. I wouldn't just sit there and accept it because it would be good for my career just to accept it. That's not me. So that would be the worst career advice.
0: Is there something you wish you would have known or a skill you wish you had when starting out
1: in the tech industry? I wish the school I went to when I was a child or the schools were better at developing my skills in asking questions and being curious. That wasn't a skill taught in my school at that time. And it took me so many years to find that skill. When I found that skill, a new world opened. So that's why now I'm in the AI space. I've started learning about cybersecurity. I've started taking classes in law. And I mentally... Think about myself as a sponge. I wish I had found that sponge approach to learning 25 years ago. Then my career path would probably have looked a bit different.
0: If you had the ability to go back in time to when you were just at the beginning of your career, what advice would you give to your younger
1: self? Sponge <laughs> becomes a sponge.
0: What advice would you give to young girls, women, non-binary, and transgenders who want and trying to break into STEM fields today, especially wanting to become next generation leaders?
1: Just do it. Just do it. Don't think too much about what other people think. Just do it.
0: Last but not least, what is next for you in your role in career in tech? What are your career aspirations?
1: I'm in the end of my 40s now and the aspirations I had maybe 10, 15 years ago to achieve a leadership position and all that, I don't have those aspirations anymore. And so now it's more about creating everyday work role for myself where I continuously expand my knowledge at the same time as I am able to make a difference for my surroundings as a speaker, as a board member, as a strategist, as a thought leader as being able to help companies to navigate in a complex landscape. My role will always be from now on to help people navigate in the problematic part of the tech landscape. That will take on different shapes and formats over the coming years, simply because we solve some problems and then new ones pop up. My role will always be about those three steps down the road to foresee what are we now going to have to deal with That also means that I need to continuously expand my competence. As I said, I've started studying law slowly, but steadily. And it's about also expanding my personal capabilities in how I deal with complex situations, conflicts, negotiations, because as a board member and board chair, you don't run the company. You are responsible for the company, but it's all about facilitating discussions and change. It's not about Being in charge, really. It's about facilitating and then taking responsibility when shit hits the thumb. So to me, as I said, it's really about expanding my personal capabilities. And then my personal goal is to be able to be my own boss and to remain my own boss for the rest of my career. Not sure that it's going to hold. And I might get office that I say, well, too good to throw away, so I'll do it. But it's not an ambition to do that. My ambition is to make a difference.
0: Thank you, Ellen, so much for being a guest on the Queens of Tech podcast. Sharing your journey will, with, without a doubt, inspire change and reshape company culture for the next generation of women, non-binary and transgender leaders in tech.
1: Thank you. And thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have worked in the tech industry a minimum of three years and would like to share your journey, please nominate yourself or somebody you know to i at com. For more podcast episodes and to learn more about the Queens of Tech initiative and to support us, visit queensof.tech.